Well, friends, what has shaped your understanding of God the most? What has shaped your understanding of who God is and what He does the most in your life? Maybe some of you grew up in church and you think back to those early teachers that you had in Sunday school classes or vacation Bible school or whatever it may be, and you think, well, that's where I was most shaped and, and how I know and understand who God is and what He does. And maybe some of you came to faith later in life, and you were an adult, an older teenager perhaps, and your understanding of God has really been shaped by those who came alongside of you and, and discipled you, or perhaps some books that you came across and read during that time. Well, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus at all. We're very thankful that you're here. Perhaps your understanding of who God is and and what he is about has come from what you've heard on the news or seen at times from television preachers. I think one of the biggest ways that we overlook, or one of the biggest things that we overlook in, in understanding what shapes our view of God is actually our own experiences. We, we would probably say, oh, that's not true, but, but if we sit back and really think about it, it's actually our own personal experiences in life that oftentimes shape how we view God and who He is. Well, just consider this way. How, how many times have, have you gotten sick or, or you've lost a job or, or something has gone terribly wrong in your life and the thought has crossed your mind, well, God must just be angry with me. Or perhaps something has gone really well. You, you've gotten that thing that you've been wanting so bad or, or perhaps someone remembered you in some special way and, and gave you a gift and you thought, well, God must be pleased with me during this time. Friends, whether we realize it or not, oftentimes it is our own experiences with the world around us that shapes how we view God. Very much so we are like the children of Israel who when they were in the wilderness in a time of drought, in a time of hardship, in a time of great need, declared what? Surely God has brought us out here to die. Their experience shaped how they viewed God. The real question here is, where should our view of God be founded? Where should our view of God find its foundation, its basis? Well, friends, let's expand that a bit. Where should our view of, of the Father be founded? Where should our view of, of Jesus, the Son of God, be founded? Where should our view of the Holy Spirit and how He moves and acts and empowers us in these days be founded? These are, these are big, massive questions that don't just impact our brains, but, but actually impact our lives. Where should we found, find the foundation of our understanding of God? Well, any of you who have been around here a while know that we believe as a church that it should be based on how God Himself has chosen to reveal who He is to us, that being His Word. See, God is not some mystical God up in the sky that we have to somehow ascend to understanding and finding out, but, but He has spoken, as, as one theologian has said, baby talk. He has given us His Word in, in the common language of His creation so that He can reveal Himself to us, so that we can know who He is. This is the very purpose of the Bible. But what we must come to understand 
If we are ever to know who God is, to ever experience Him for who He truly is, is that the only way we can receive the Bible, the only way that we can engage with this God that the Bible tells us about is by faith alone. This has really been one of the key touching points in the book of Hebrews as we have gone throughout. Maybe you remember how the book of Hebrews itself, the, the whole thing starts out. In Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, it's all about this revelation of God. Let me read it just to give you a reminder. It's been a long time since we've been there. But this is what Hebrews 1, this is how it begins. Long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Long ago, in various ways, in, in various times, God spoke to the people of old by the prophets. But in these last days, those days since the ascension of Christ, He has spoken to us by His Son. God has revealed Himself to us in His Word. Chiefly, He has revealed the Savior of all of those who turn to God and put their trust in Him. God has spoken to us by His Son. We see here that God is a God who moves. And in that, His people, if we are to ever have hope in time of hardship, if we are ever to have encouragement, if we are, are to ever have perseverance, if we are ever to grow in maturity and in holiness, this God who moves must be followed by faith. He must be trusted by faith. He must be seen by faith. We must listen to Him by faith. And that is exactly what chapter 11 of Hebrews has been all about. How it is that we come to know God, to experience God, to, to understand God, even in our finite, feeble little minds, as, as much as they are able to. The only way that it is done, and the only way it has ever been done throughout history, has been by faith. You remember Hebrews 11 began by telling us about three who specifically believed in, in God's promise, who had faith in God's provision for them, specifically in Abel and Enoch and Noah. They believed God and they, and they walked with God and they had intimacy with God. From there, Hebrews 11 went to Abraham and his family with Sarah and Isaac and, and Jacob and Joseph and how those of that generation of that time followed God, that they had faith in God and it caused them to move, to be about the, the, the places where he led them, having hope in a better country that was yet to come. So they did not make the world around them their home. And then last week we looked at Moses and the people and how by faith they were kept by God. How he, he preserved them. How he kept them. How he, he brought victory to them, specifically in marching around Jericho. How it was by faith they were kept. It, it all goes back then, and I've brought this up every week, and I'll bring it up again this week to Hebrews 10.39. This is the faith that we've been hearing about. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Which brings us to the final section of Hebrews 11 that we're going to cover today. Hebrews 11, 32 through 38. Next week we'll look at 39 and 40, the conclusion of this chapter. This morning we're going to look at this final section. And it really covers a, a lot of space and a lot of amount of time. And, 
and it's really quick. He speeds it up a lot here. It really spans the time from the judges all the way up to the coming of Jesus himself. And so if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Hebrews 11, beginning in verse 32. If you don't have a Bible of your own, there's some there in the seats in front of you. And Hebrews 11:32 is found on page 948. If you're new to the Bible, once you get to page 948, just look for that little number 32 there among all the words. And that's where I'll begin reading here in just a moment. And as always, friend, if you need a Bible or if you have, you have others that you know who need Bibles, we do have some Bibles that we would love to gift you. And they're on the, in the foyer in the back. You can take those as you need them. Well, friends, I'm going to read the entire passage for us. So let me invite you to stand once more out of honor for the reading of God's Word. And this is the Word of the Lord to us today from Hebrews 11. 32 through 38. It says there, And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in the deserts and mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. There's a lot there. I've already rolled up my sleeves. You all might as well do the same thing. There is a lot here for us to consider this morning. There's a lot of phrases, a lot of words, and a lot of meaning packed into them. But really this section breaks up into big, two big chunks that I'll use as kind of the, the guiding point for my sermon. Two points that we'll have, and, and they're these. That by faith we surpass, and by faith we suffer. By faith we surpass, and we see this in verse 32 all the way through the first half of verse 35. And then by faith we suffer. We see this the second half of 35 all the way to 38. And as we think about these two ideas of surpassing and suffering, my prayer is for us today is that God would fortify our faith in Him so that neither triumph nor tragedy would affect our, our enduring trust and perseverance by faith in God, the God who saves. So let's begin this morning by thinking then about how by faith we surpass. Look back there at verse 32. He begins by saying, what more shall I say, for time would fail me. Now this is one of the reasons I really believe that, that the entire book of Hebrews isn't actually a book or isn't actually a letter, but more than likely is, is a sermon. And this is a sort of sermon manuscript or sermon notes of a sermon that was preached. Because if he had been writing a letter, he has really all the time in the world. But you see that he says that time would fail him to step back and to tell even more of what is going on. I really believe that, that Hebrews is, is being delivered by a preacher of some sort, and it's being given to us in this concentrated form. 
See, so far in Hebrews 11, he's mostly zeroed in on in Genesis, Exodus, and Joshua. Those have kind of been the big books that he's kind of taken aim at in, in these first two sections of Hebrews 11. But now he shifts it into high gear, and really he, he's used up the majority of his time focusing on those first three, but now he comes to this way, to, to the rest of those he, he does not have time to mention. Now, now, just to make sure we understand here the aim of what he's getting at in these last few verses, this last section here of Hebrews 11, is his aim is not just to list off a bunch of Old Testament people for the fun of it. That's not been his aim the entire time. He's not just trying to amaze you and wow you with some crazy stories of stuff people did a long time ago. No, his aim here in Hebrews 11, especially in this section, has always been the same thing. It is to show us that, that, that all of those who have been used by God have been used by God in faith. That it is by their faith in God that they have been used by God. And so we see that as they put their trust in God in one way or another, stuff's happened. Things have gone down in their lives. Friends, this, this chapter and these verses are not here for your entertainment. They are here for your encouragement. So let's look at it. Let's get at it. There in verse 32 we see really three groups of people who are mentioned. He breaks these down into three groups. And, and just to point this out, and, and I'll give you kind of references here and there. They're not in chronological order. That's not his intention. Again, it's not here to paint some history to, to woo and to wow us. So, so he doesn't even mention these people in chronological order, just to be clear, okay? So, so first section we have there is the judges. And he doesn't mention all of the judges. There's, there's more than the four that he mentions there. But we see that he mentions four of them in particular, Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah. Now, if you want to jot this down in your notes... You can learn about Gideon from Judges 6 and through 8, chapter 6 through 8 of Judges. You can learn about Barak in chapters 4 and 5. Okay, so, so it goes from 6 to 8 back to 4 and 5. You can learn about Samson in chapters 13 through 16 of Judges. And then in chapters 11 and 12, you can learn about Jephthah. If you want to go back and make time to read those, read through the book of Judges this week. My family's been reading through it for our children's school. And, and I think every time Megan has texted me after they've done that portion of their schooling with, what is going on here? Our kids just sit with their mouths wide open as I'm reading through this chapter and that chapter of Judges. It is crazy stuff. We're eventually going to get to it in our Wednesday night Bible study. But uh, go back and read it this week. Next we have David and Samuel. Now, we do know Samuel came before David, but here in, in his telling of it, he puts David first, perhaps because David is preeminent in his kingship. But you can learn about David and Samuel from the book of 1 Samuel all the way through 2 Chronicles. We see this whole story of David and Samuel and, and, and the lineage of David and all that happens in the time of the kings. And then finally we have the prophets. Now there are prophets that are mentioned in the time of the kings and many of them prophesied during the time of the kings, especially Elijah and Elisha, which we're going to come back to. But most likely here he's referring to Isaiah to Malachi. All of the prophets, both major and minor. And so what do we have in front of us here in just this list of several names in reference to the prophets? Well friends, we have nothing less than the rest of the Old Testament. 
He's speaking here of the entire rest of the Old Testament from Judges all the way up, as we'll see in just a moment, to the time of Christ's oncoming. It is a large portion that he's about to cover in just seven verses. And so this morning, instead of focusing on each one of these, which he chose not to do in his presentation of them, we're instead going to focus on how he talks about them. We're going to focus on what he gives us about their faith. And so we see there, as the passage continues in verse 33, who, these people, who, through faith, and then he goes off to list ten different things. Ten different things that surpass what's naturally and normally done. Ten great feats of faith. Ten amazing accomplishments of faith. And I want to point this out here at the beginning before we go through these, because we're going to go through all ten of them, is that all of these happen because of their faith in God. Or perhaps a better way to say that would be that all of these things happen because God Himself brings them about through people who have put their hope and trust in Him. These are God's doings through His people, but specific people who through faith did these things. And that's important to remember. Because if you go back, especially if you go back and read the book of Judges, but even thinking about David, these are not perfect people. These are not always morally upright people. These are not people who are always walking in the revealed will of God. These are people who, who falter and, and, and fumble in their faith just like we do. And yet all of these things that he mentions here, when those things happen, were times of faith. So let's think about them. First, through faith, they conquered kingdoms. This word conquered means to subdue or to prevail over kingdoms. And really, you could, you could tie this back to Joshua as he leads the people in the book of Joshua into the land of Canaan and they take out city after city and people after people to, to take hold of the land that God had given them. But we also see this in David as well that David brings peace about in the kingdom in various ways in taking out different peoples and different nations as they came against Israel. There's a sign here, an, an idea here, of, of this kind of kingly, kind of military political leadership. That they were able to take the entire people and bring victory to them over the kingdoms of this world. And why does he point this out? He points this out to help us see that God is still in the business of conquering kingdoms. While it may not be by us taking up the sword, God conquers kingdoms through His gospel. This is one of the reasons that we see in many nations leadership and, and government so opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ because they know something, at least intuitively, if not actually, that this gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to overthrow our kingdom and to overthrow our power and to overthrow our clutching of the people that we rule over. We saw this in the book of Acts, didn't we? How 12 men, 13 men, a small group of early followers of Jesus were able to turn the world on its head. Jesus is still in the business of conquering kingdoms. It just looks a little bit different. So we're told here that these by faith conquer kingdoms. Should we expect anything less? Next, we see that they enforced justice. Literally, that they wrought righteousness. We, we read the word wrought in our, our statement of faith this morning in our corporate reading. And it's always a word I like to point out when we read it because it's an old word that we don't use very often. But it means to bring about, to make happen. 
Salvation is wrought in us by the Holy Spirit. It is the Spirit who gives us a new heart. And the same idea is here, that these who are mentioned brought about justice. Specifically here, thinking about the judges. We read this in, in Judges 2, that they were put in place to bring about peace and to bring about righteousness and to set things right where they had gone askew. And we saw how when the judges ruled, the people prospered. But when the judges died, the people went their own ways and went into wickedness. And so we see here that these who acted by faith brought about righteousness. We see the same thing with Samuel as well, as he would travel this circuit as a judge and a priest over the people. And so we find out, as we have a culture that is riddled with conversations about justice and what is justice and what does justice look like, we find that only true justice and only true peace can come by faith. That any justice that is fought for outside of faith in Jesus Christ is not real justice. And that all oppression... And all persecution comes from a place of a lack of faith. Next we see that they obtained promises. Now this is an interesting one. Because we read earlier with Abraham and with Moses that they did not receive what was promised. In fact, verse 39, just look there really quick. Verse 39 says, And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. So it seems like our preacher of Hebrews has a little bit of problem getting his story straight, doesn't it? No. The promises that are spoken of in Abraham and here in verse 39 are those eternal promises, the new heavens and the new earth and seeing Jesus face to face. Those promises, likewise for us, have yet to be obtained. But there are those promises that God made in the special calling of these people mentioned here that were obtained. You think of Gideon. Gideon is a wonderful example of promises made by God that he then went and obtained. In Judges 7... Gideon is told to whittle his army down to 300 men. And if he obeys and walks in faith in taking his army down to 300 men, he will be able to conquer the innumerable soldiers of the innumerable armies that are before him in the Amorites. And so Gideon goes out with his 300 men and he obtains the very promise of God. Friends, we are reminded here that nothing can lie in the way of God accomplishing His purposes. It does not matter how weak or feeble we are. God is always strong and powerful in accomplishing His promises. Which brings us to the next one. That they stopped the mouths of lions. And all you little boys and girls perked up on that. What? And this is not just talking about one thing. Now, many of us, you know, if we, we grew up in church and we're in Sunday school, vacation, Bible school, we, oh, yeah, that's Daniel, right? Daniel, he stopped the mouths of lions. In, in one sense, it was. He was thrown into the lion's den, and the next morning he was found intact. The angels came in the night and shut the mouths of the lions. But that's not all. With Samson, we find as a young man, when a lion comes upon him, he rips it to pieces. In his strength. We find in 1 Samuel 17 that David as well in protecting the flock killed lions. Well, what do we find here? Well friends we find nothing less that if God can stop the mouths of lions from devouring his people by faith he can stop the fiercest persecutions that become upon his people in these days. 
This is a powerful God. Next, we see that he quenched, they quenched the power of fire. You're right, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, this is interesting in this phrase here. Did you notice this? It doesn't say that they quenched fire, but they quenched the power of fire. And that's exactly what we find there in Daniel is that the fire did not go out. In fact, the furnace was turned up and killed the captors as they threw them in. The fire was still very present. It did not go anywhere, and yet its very power was quenched by the fourth man who walked among them in the flames. So that when they came out, they didn't even smell of smoke. See here, when it comes to God's glory, and this is, this is what they said. Do you remember what they say? Oh, Nebuchadnezzar. There in Daniel 3, oh Nebuchadnezzar, if it is our God's desire to keep us from death, then He will. But, but even if we burn, we will not bow a knee and bring you glory. We are here to bring God glory. And we see that whether we live or whether we die, when God's people by faith aim to bring Him glory and Him alone glory, He will preserve them. This is what we see in the next one as well. And this gets into the, some of the wisdom aspect that they escaped the edge of the sword. Most notably here we see this with David. And after David's early anointing by Samuel, what happens? Well, Saul, who's currently king, begins to rage against David. He hates David. He has David come and he plays music for him and it calms him down and then he flings a spear at him. Can you imagine the anxiety as David is running through the wilderness, hiding from Saul, he had multiple times even to kill Saul and doesn't because he entrusted him into the hand of the Lord. And so what do we see here? We see that there are times that by faith, wisdom means that we escape. Wisdom means that we, we flight instead of fight. That there are times when God's people, by faith, run. And so we continue then. They were made strong out of weakness. Strength out of their weakness. Where do we see this? Friends, in every one of these we could see it. Perhaps Samson is a good example in his own strength that is given to him by God. As he's there leaning against the pillars, he pleads with God for one more opportunity of strength and God grants it. But I'm reminded of King Hezekiah. You remember King Hezekiah was sentenced to death by God, that he was going to die, and he pleads with God in his weakness. You can read it there in, in 2 Kings 30 or, or in Isaiah 38, because Isaiah is, is active during this time of the reign of Hezekiah. And what does God do? In Hezekiah's weakness, God gives him strength to live for 15 more years. As we continue on then, you see there in 34 that they became mighty in war and put foreign armies to flight. I'm going to bring those two together. Because we see the, the great work of these valiant men who fought by faith for God. Think of Gideon. Think of Samson. We think of David. That their gifting, their calling was not because of natural talent but it was by faith that they brought these things about. That it was faith that they accomplished great feats with the jawbone of a donkey killing a thousand men. It is by faith that they, 
they, they fulfill God's calling on their lives in conquering. And finally, there in the first half of verse 35, women received back their dead by resurrection. This is talking about two specific instances in the life of Elijah and Elisha, both of them as prophets of God by faith bring children back from the dead. We have this picture here, this ongoing idea of resurrection. It's going to come up again that they received their their children back from the dead. But it was only a partial resurrection. It was just a a, a mortal resurrection. It was not the eternal resurrection. Hang on to that. We're going to get there. But we see here in 1 Kings 17 and 2 Kings 4 how God used the faith of these two prophets to bring life to those who had lost it so that they put their children, these children, back into the arms of their mothers. There we have it. Ten amazing feats of faith. Surpassing what should be expected, what could even be imagined. And so what is the point of all of this? Why does he give us these great feats of faith that surpass? And how is it that by faith we surpass? What is he trying to help us understand? Why go through each one of these like this and just list them off one after another? Well, for one reason, he didn't have time to get into all of it. He tells us that much. But here's the question I have. Should we expect such triumphs in our own day? Well, friends, not in these specific ways. As our time and our calling are very different from the time of the judges and the the kings and the prophets. But the goal of God remains the same. It is for His people to walk by faith in Him and so display His glory to all of creation. This is what we're going to think about tonight as we begin our talks on evangelism by looking at Mark 16, 15. To go into all of creation and proclaim the gospel. That is the same thing that they in like times were called to do. To go into creation and proclaim the good news of the glory of the God who saves, who redeems. Which helps us get to the core of what's held out here. And it's this. That God accomplished great things through these people, not because of their moral superiority. That God accomplished great things through these people, not because they were natural leaders or they had read all the books or watched all the TED Talks. That's not why God worked in the lives of these people. It's not because they had the best education. It's not because they had the best money. It's not because they had the cleanest record. It is only because they had faith in and to say it more simply, the point here is that God accomplished these things through these people because of their faith in God alone. So we find that the kind of faith that surpasses what is expected or seen is faith that is placed in an unsurpassable God. That the faith that has great triumphs, that, that flourishes, that, that blossoms and explodes with, with risk and with vigor and with devotion to God. Going long and doing hard things for Him is a faith in an unsurpassable God and a God who is powerful and able to accomplish all that He has set out to do. This is why we t- want to and desire to obey God's Word. 
Because if God has promised to do something in His Word, and He has commanded us to do something, then we're standing on solid ground that God is going to fulfill what He has said. And so when we come at it with some weak, well, I feel like God wants me to do this, and we have no scriptural backing for it, we should not expect always to have success. But if God has made a promise, and we are walking in obedience, we will experience the fruit of faith. And so I ask, what of your faith? Is it fake like these? These listed here had great failures of faith at times. But God still worked, not because they earned it or deserved it, but because God was pleased to show His glory in their frailty. And the same faith that was granted to them in these feats, these victorious feats, is the same faith that resides in every true follower of God. It is the same faith that is at work when we come and we gather and we sing to God. It is the same faith that resides within your very heart when you put your feet on the floor in the morning and go to a job that you're sick and tired of. It is the same faith when you have to take a child aside for the umpteenth time that day and have a conversation with them about what does it look like to walk in obedience. It is that same faith at work. Why? Not because of who holds the faith, but because who gives that faith. And where that faith is grounded, in the very promises of God, it is grounded in, in God Himself. And in that way, all of these great surpassing feats of faith are really just a picture. They're really just a shadow of what is held out in all eternity for those who have turned to Jesus, the great prophet, priest, and king. For he is the one who surpasses all that we could ask or imagine in his time, in his earthly ministry, and in the age we find ourselves in. For it is Christ who will crush the roars of his enemies. It is Christ who will bring nations into subjection. It is Christ who will cause swords to be beaten into plowshares. It is Christ who will quench the fire and bring justice to those who have longed for it for so long. It is Christ who will finally bring the resurrection from the dead. Friends, this is the Jesus Christ that we serve, that all of those who walked in faith are simply a picture of. This is not where the picture ends, is it? We have the second half here, that by faith we suffer. Look back at the second half of verse 35. It begins by saying some were tortured. In verse 36, it begins by saying others suffered. Now, I can't get over these two words, some and others. Who is he speaking of here? In the first part, he named names. But now we come to a second part where they're just referred to as some and others. Now, we could tie these things that we're about to read, these horrendous acts to, to prophets like Jeremiah, those that are mentioned throughout. But I think he mentions them here as some and others on purpose. And it's because they're so innumerable, they're so many, that their names are not even known. That there are those who lived who suffered for the sake 
of God and who were long forgotten, whose names are not recorded in any book, in any place, who walked with God and died because of it. And yet we have no idea in our time who they are. But friends, do not miss the point. They walked by faith, and their name is known to the God of the universe. That those who died as sums and others have their very names written in the Lamb's book of life. And so while they may be anonymous to us, and we only know what happened to them, though we do not know who they were, God Himself, the one who kept them and preserved their faith, knows exactly who they are. And friends, this is the chief experience of God's people. A hundred years from now, all of us are probably more than likely not going to be remembered. If Jesus tarries until that time, if you're lucky, some family tree app will still be around and your great-great-great-grandchildren may put your name on a piece of paper somewhere, if paper still exists. But we're going to be forgotten. Except unto God. He will remember His people. He will keep them. And He will preserve them. And so we find here, these anonymous ones suffered in 13 different ways. Now, I'm not going to go through all 13 like I did in point one. But instead, let's look at a couple of the categories, if you will. Picking up there in the second half of 35, some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. This idea of torturing was a very harsh way of death. This word torturing literally means to be, be stretched out like the head of a drum. And we know from history that, that mechanisms and and, and devices were built in which people's hands and feet would be tied and, and they would be cranked until they were stretched and stretched and their bones were pulled out of joint. But what's amazing to me about this here in verse 35 is not necessarily what happened and all of its gruesomeness, but why it happened. Look back. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release. What is he saying? He's saying they could have got out of it. That all they had to do was deny God. All they had to do was deny faith in Him. And they would have been released. But they refused to accept such a fate. For a life of denying God is a million times worse than a death of faith in Him. This is the worst, friends, that Satan in the world can do to us. This is it. This is the worst. We're going to come back around to this verse in just a minute, but let's keep going. Verse 36, Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. You see a picture here of the very thing that happened to Christ and being beaten and mocked and, and held against His will. These bonds were the bonds of the Savior first, and so they followed the true elder brother we're reminded here, friends, and we should see this in all that we're about to read. And, and it, it kind of culminates here in just a minute. But, but this idea that Jesus Christ does not call us to anything that He Himself does not go down first. He does not call us down any road that He has not walked before us. And so in following Him, 
Think of those in the book of Acts who found themselves in chains, who were regularly beaten and flayed, and yet went back for some more. What does this tell us, friends? Well, the great encouragement I have for you is that we should not fear it. If God and His providence has such things for us or for our children or for our grandchildren, the thing that we must hand them is to not be afraid and do not be surprised. Be prepared and be ready and endure with faith. From there we go into verse 37 with some great acts of terror. And that's the only way I can think of describing them there. They were stoned. Think of how this began with Stephen and Acts. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. Most historical records tell us that this is what happened to the prophet Jeremiah. They were killed with the sword. We find these, these horrendous acts being described here that became and befell on God's people because of their faith in Him. It revealed the utmost rage. Do you notice that? That, that these acts that are described here in Hebrews eleven thirty seven, 37, it's not just that they, they killed the followers of God. That, that's easy. To kill, kill a follower of God, that can happen really quick. But the things that are described here are long, drawn-out, gruesome deaths. They were terrorized for following God. Finally, we see there in the final part of our passage, end of verse 37, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. And then jumping back down to the end, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Friends, we should not be surprised when the world around us and the culture and society around us turns us into outcast and mocks us hates us and ridicules us. Maybe someday we'll find ourselves wearing goat skins, living in caves. But even if we don't, we might find or certainly will find ourselves in proverbial goat skins and proverbial caves by the world around us. And it has always been this way for the people of God. They've always found themselves having to put their hope and a kingdom that is not of this world, because the kingdoms of this world want nothing to do with them. And that's exactly what he gets at a little bit earlier there in verse 35. I skipped over that phrase. Look back there, the end of 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. Friends, this is the true hope of the suffering people of God, that their suffering will turn over into a better life, that their suffering will turn over into home, into that better country that's been described so often in this chapter. See, the resurrection of Elijah and Elisha was just a mortal resurrection, but the resurrection that God's people are hoping for here is an eternal one, a hope, a future a, a trust and assurance in things not seen, so much assured of that they would accept death for their faith in God. He ends here then 
because so much of what he has said so far in Hebrews 11 was victorious. If you think about it, it, with the exception of maybe Abel in the beginning, everybody else that he's talked about, really wonderful things have happened. The stories have always had somewhat of a, a happy ending. But you've got to remember who the book of Hebrews is written to. It's not written to a bunch of people who have just been flourishing in the faith, who have lived in relative safety and security as many of us have over the past hundred years. No, the people in the book of Hebrews, and dare I be so bold to say the people that we are going to become in the years and decades ahead are people who need to be encouraged in suffering, who need to be encouraged in the hardship. And so for all of the feats of faith that he's mentioned so far, he ends here by pointing to the suffering and the sorrow of God's people and how by faith they were carried through. How by faith they endured. How by faith they suffered well to gain the prize. That's giving away Hebrews 12. Don't want to get there just yet. See, it was good for those first listeners to hear of how the fathers of their Jewish heritage walked in the same faith that they were called to. That's really what he points out in the first couple sections of this book. That same faith that, that you have in Jesus Christ, that's the same faith that, that Abraham and, and Isaac and, and Jacob and Joseph and Moses, that they had that same faith that God would fulfill His promises. It's just fuller and more rich and been fulfilled in Christ. It's the same faith. And so it was good for them to know that. But what of their hearts? What of what they feel? Where's the encouragement to press on in the face of hatred and mocking and being ostracized by the very people who should love them and welcome them and join them in new covenant worship? That's what we find here. And the same goes for us, friends. To know that we are not alone in our suffering whether it's the suffering of a, of a broken body, the suffering of a broken culture. We are not alone. You are not alone. I'll go ahead and give it away, Hebrews 12, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And who are those witnesses? But those who have suffered for their faith in God. And to know that God has preserved the souls of those who walked by faith. And so we take up the call of, of Peter in his first letter. He says, not to be surprised at the very fiery trials when they come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Friends, we are, have got to be done with this surprise that we are hated for our faith. We've got to be done with, with, with shock that it's difficult to share the gospel with somebody and them not to laugh at our faces. We've got to press forward in knowing that we're not just going to have love and adoration and money thrown at us for loving Jesus. It's not going to happen. Do not be surprised. It's not strange. But friends, it has always been the way of God. So what preserves us through? I think it's all tied up in the gospel then. It, do you realize this? That Jesus is the only one who falls on both sides of this coin. That Jesus 
at one hand is the triumphant king. And on the other hand, he is the suffering servant. That Jesus surpasses and he suffers. That he is the one who has overcome through resurrection, but had to die so that he could rise. That Jesus is the one who has sustained us because he is the one who has done it all. That he was mocked and scorned and beaten. That he was stretched on a tree. That he died because he could no longer hold himself up by the very nails that pierced his hands and his feet. That he bled. That he was pierced with the spear. And his body was taken down and buried. That he suffered. Not just at the hands of his own people, but suffered the very wrath of God. For us who turn to him in repentance and faith. And so he suffered, but then he surpassed. The only way that resurrection can ever be experienced is if Christ himself has risen from the dead. And so he did. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ that builds up and preserves the saints. Saints who are weighed down in their marriages and in their parenting. Saints who are struggling with their work and their free time. Saints who struggle with secret sins and struggle with doubt and sorrows that, that we will never know. That only you and God know. This is how we persevere with hurt bodies and hurt bank accounts and hurt hearts. This is how we persevere. And so the great call of this passage is to not put your hope in your good achievements and not to sit down in your sorrows, but to stand up and to press forward by faith. To press forward and stopping giving in to silly sins. And press forward to stop running after every little whim and every little delight that shows up in your life. Do you realize that we neglect the gathering of the saints while there are people around the world who are dying and losing their heads just to be with God's people? But we're too busy doing other things. We live in a culture where Jesus is a joke and his kingdom is fake news. Much less that he will come and he will bring everlasting judgment on the world. And so the question for you is, are you being equipped to run? Are you being equipped to march forward by faith? Are you ready to do things for God that so surpass our understanding that we can only attribute them to faith and only attribute them to the work of God? We must be ready along the wall and in the watchtowers. We cannot sit idly by while flaming darts and hateful boulders are being launched and shot at us. We must be on the lookout for the tempting siren song, the lull of sleepiness that is part and parcel of so much of modern Christianity. The reality is we don't need to deconstruct our faith. The world and Satan are already bent on doing that for us. They are actually working to do that this very moment. As we find our screens filled with provocative images our news feeds full of people living prettier and better lives than you. Our stores are full of the latest and greatest food and supplement for your body, 
Your friend's work seems to be happier. They seem to have a bigger car, a fancier house, and more well-bred children. But here's the problem with all of it. What of you? How will you live? What difference are you? In both of these instances of faith described here, whether it was in great feats of faith or great sorrows and suffering for faith, one thing that these people were not was irrelevant. They were not inactive. Well, we can sit here all day and talk about the world we live in and the reason that there's no real change in the world toward revival and holiness toward Jesus himself is because we have largely bowed out. We have largely become irrelevant to this culture. So what does it actually mean to follow Jesus? What does it actually mean for you to have faith in Him? Well, here we find that some days it means taking the sword in your hand. And other days it means having the sword laid across your neck. But faith never sits idly by. Faith never pulls up a rocking chair. And you know why? It's because God never sits idly by. He is always moving, and His people must follow Him by faith. I'll close with this illustration. Once John Wesley was asked what he would do if he knew this was his last day on earth, how he would spend his last day on earth. This is what he said. He said, at 4 o'clock I would have some tea. At 6 I would visit Mrs. Brown in the hospital. Then at 7.30 I would conduct a midweek prayer service. At 10 I would go to bed and would wake up in glory. The point of what John Wesley's saying is he would do what he normally does. He would do exactly what he does every single day of his life if he knew it was his last day. So let me ask it to you this way. How would your life be lived differently if you knew Christ was coming back today? How would your life be lived differently if you knew that Jesus was coming back this very night? How would we change our course of action? How would you change how you speak, how you work, how you conduct yourself differently? And friend, if your answer is anything other than what I normally do, then there's the problem. That means that you're knowingly living a life without faith. That means that you're knowingly living a life that is not bent on serving Jesus. That means you're knowingly living in this world, living for the here and now, storing up for yourself treasures in this passing place where you currently stand. And so the whole point of the passage is here then, isn't it? That by faith, all of these did something. For some, it was days of bounty. For others, it was days of lack. But for all of them, there were 10,000 charms of faith because they had entrusted their days and their nights to the one who had committed himself to them to use them up and to pour them out for his own glory and for their eternal reward. Why not you? What holds you back? What keeps you from pressing on in faith? What shiny toy keeps your eyes from heaven? What earthly comfort keeps you from pressing in and pressing on? What personal goal keeps you from obeying God's command? What pristine life keeps you from getting spiritual dirt under your fingernails? Are you persevering in faith or are you puttering along? 
The reality that we have to answer in our own lives is, are we willing to give it all, all away? And as a person and, and as God's people, to do, see God do things among us in these days that can only be attributed to Him and Him alone. I don't know about you, but this is the God that I want to know. This is the God that I want to experience. This is the God that I want to walk with and that I want to live for more and more and more. Because if we're living in this way, whether it be surpassing greatness or great suffering, if we're living in this way, we will be living by faith. Let me pray for us. Father, you are good and you're kind to give us your word. And so we come before you this morning in faith. We come and we ask, Lord, that you would move, that you would give us renewed faith in you, renewed trust, renewed hope, whether it be in bounty or in lack. As you give and as you take away, God, may we bless your name. May we follow you and entrust ourselves to you. May we seek greater devotion and greater obedience to your word. Looking to our Savior Christ who has went before in great suffering and great triumph. As we come to this table now, God, we ask that you would remind us that we are not alone. Because we have a Savior who has given himself for us promised us life in Him forevermore. It is in His name we pray. Amen.